All right, welcome everyone to the Ben and Corey podcast. I'm Corey Novotny. And I'm Benjamin Carlson. We have another fun episode ahead of us as the NBA playoffs and the Stanley Cup playoffs are heating up, baseball is well underway, and the NFL draft has come and gone. That's right, Corey. We can't wait to talk about all those things in addition to some of our favorite segments. And as a reminder, you can listen to this podcast on both SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. So with that, let's get started. While the NFL season doesn't start until September, the NFL draft took place this past weekend. We'll talk about all the quarterbacks and discuss and debate some of the top players selected, as well as some of the more intriguing or questionable picks in the draft. The NBA playoffs saw an exciting first round as the Warriors, Rockets, and 76ers all quickly dispatched their first round opponents. The injury-riddled Celtics knocked off the Bucks, and LeBron and the Cavaliers survived a hard-fought seven-game series with the Pacers. We'll preview all four second-round series and predict who we believe will advance to the conference finals. The Stanley Cup playoffs have also started the second round, and we're left with one of the best Final Eight teams ever. We'll talk about the expansion Vegas Golden Knights postseason run in their debut season, and the Penguins and Capitals playing for the third straight year. Plus, Corey will try to persuade me to believe the Stanley Cup playoffs are the most exciting postseason in sports. We also bring back one of our favorite segments from the past in my show, my team. And in honor of the release of Avengers Infinity War, Corey and I debate our favorite Marvel superheroes in today's top five. So uh, let's get started with uh, one of my areas of expertise, the NFL, as the NFL draft has come and gone. And while for me this is one of the less exciting NFL drafts, I still think that there's a lot to talk about here, especially with all the quarterbacks taking off the board in the first round. Yep, so this year we saw... Four quarterbacks go in the top 10, which is the the most that we've ever had in an NFL draft. Uh, we had five total in the first round, and that started with the number one overall pick, Baker Mayfield out of Oklahoma. So, Ben, being from Oklahoma City, I'm sure you, you spent a lot of time around Oklahoma fans, Baker Mayfield fans. What is your take on Baker going number one overall? Baker Mayfield is a special player. He is the first walk-on to ever be drafted, number one overall, and he has a lot of intangibles. Uh, I know that he's a little bit short, and a lot of people maybe doubted that he was the best quarterback in this seemingly quarterback-heavy draft. Uh, I think that this is a good pick for the Browns. I like that he has an opportunity to sit behind Tyrod Taylor, although I don't think that he'll sit for an entire year. I think we'll see some Baker Mayfield on the field this season. Uh, but I, the thing is, the Browns are a historically mm-hmm. bad football team. And take I think that the safe pick here wasn't the right choice. I think that going with the guy, the, G, the Browns GM felt like this was his guy. Baker Mayfield was the man that could lead the Browns from the depths of despair. And I think that if you have confidence in a guy, uh, especially a special guy like Baker Mayfield who has – proven the haters wrong his entire career uh he's uh i I think that 
you got to take a chance on him. I actually saw Baker Mayfield play in person this year. I went to Texas Tech at Oklahoma and watched Baker Mayfield basically sprint up and down the field as his team scored touchdown after touchdown. Being an SEC uh, man myself, I wasn't used to football games lasting that long, but they had to take a break every time Oklahoma scored another touchdown to celebrate. So the game lasted well over three hours. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I like this. I, I like this pick. For me, I'm not very sure about any of these quarterbacks, but uh, I think that Baker Mayfield has the intangibles that warrant him at least being an, an option at number one. Yeah, I've I've been a huge fan of Baker. Um, pretty much the whole time he's been at Oklahoma, he particularly won my heart when after defeating Ohio State this year on the road, he came out and planted an Oklahoma Sooners flag at midfield. Uh, I thought, yeah, I thought at that moment, that was when he uh, officially clinched the Heisman Trophy, which he went on to to win in December. Uh, I, I think in terms of all the quarterbacks in this class, they all have flaws. Mayfield, is he's smaller, and he has some of those off-the-field concerns. There are some of those comparisons with Johnny Manziel. I don't think that's going to be an issue with Baker. I think that the Browns certainly made a bold, uh, as you said, not the safe pick at number one. But as a Steelers fan who has to face the the Browns twice a year, I'm definitely uh, not not feeling all that well in terms of uh, the Cleveland Browns' lack of success against Pittsburgh going forward, just given all the moves that they've made in the offseason and throwing a guy who... All he knows how to do is win, Maker Baker Mayfield. So, uh, very interesting selection to say the least. But I definitely, uh, I'm going to be rooting for the guy. I would like to, to see him have a pretty solid NFL career, despite playing for one of my rival teams. Agreed, agreed. I mean, the Browns are the Browns, but maybe Baker Mayfield can pull him out of it. Uh, so, th- next quarterback up. Sam Darnold to the Jets, third overall, supposedly the most complete quarterback in the draft. I didn't watch a whole lot of Trojans football. What was your take on uh, Sam Darnold, Corey? Yeah, so Darnold's college career reminds me of almost a poor man's Jameis Winston. His freshman year, unbelievable. Uh, Didn't win the national championship like Winston did, but he did win arguably the most exciting Rose Bowl ever against Penn State. Uh, And he was supposed to be the clear-cut number one overall pick following uh, his would-be sophomore season. But didn't play as well as a sophomore. USC didn't quite meet expectations uh, as they failed to make the uh, to, to win the Pac-12, but I do think that Darnold is a talented quarterback, and I don't know if it's fair to judge him just because he had one not great college season. Um, so for me, I think going to the Jets, they have two options that they signed in free agency in bringing back Josh McCown and adding Teddy Bridgewater, who was once a promising starter with the Vikings. So I don't know if there's a whole lot of pressure for Darnold to get in. I think there are a couple other guys that would really have to not play well for that New York crowd to to be screaming for Darnold, which being New York, being a big city like that, you want to see the young guy get his chance if things aren't going well with the veterans. Uh, but I, I, I do think that Darnold is a guy who, you know, given some time, if they don't rush him into playing, he can certainly uh, be a solid quarterback in this league. 
I do have some doubts, though, in terms of the Jets managing their quarterback situation uh, perfectly. So. Agreed. But um, in my opinion, Josh McCown is a really, uh, you know, he's, he's as veteran as you can get at the quarterback position in the NFL. So a great person to mm-hmm. learn under. And the addition of Teddy Bridgewater in New York means even if they, they scream to bench McCown, it doesn't necessarily mean that it'll mean uh, Sam Darnold getting his starts early. So I, I think that the Jets did luck out and got a lot of value at this pick. I think that they always wanted to get a quarterback and uh, maybe didn't expect to have the opportunity to draft Darnold here. So uh, I, I think the Jets are as happy as they can be with their third overall pick. Uh, continuing along, Josh Allen was drafted by the Bills, number seven overall pick that they traded uh, from the Buccaneers. So uh, Josh Allen... I think has a lot of potential, but he also has a lot of potential to be a bust. Uh, and, and I'm not really sure what the plan is at quarterback in Buffalo because uh, if Josh Allen wants to see any snaps this season, he'll have to beat out the likes of uh, AJ McCarron and the coaches, the co- the front office's favorite quarterback, Nathan Peterman. Uh, so, what do you think, Corey? What's Josh Allen's yeah. situation? <laughs> so. There were a lot of experts who love Josh Allen. Mel Kuyper was a big fan. Uh, he had some accuracy issues in college. He had some trouble staying healthy and uh, actually playing while he was at Wyoming. But when he was on the field, he played well. Uh, I think that there are a lot of comparisons to Carson Wentz, just in the sense of you know where he played, being from a smaller school. And while he didn't have the same type of uh, winning success that Carson Wentz did, I do think that Josh Allen... Uh, has some potential to develop into a a quality quarterback, uh, but he did have some controversy surface at the uh, the very latter stages of the draft process. As some folks dug up his old tweets, uh, there were some controversial things he had said in high school, tweeting some uh, rap lyrics that uh, were certainly racially insensitive. Uh, he still wound up going number seven, so I think the Bills believe in his character and don't think that those uh, tweets he had made in the past represent him today. But it's certainly something to watch in terms of his ability to control a locker room as a leader, knowing he has this in his past. He does have to handle that, but I don't know. Growing up, I remember a lot of times adults being like, Anything you do on the internet is permanent and forever, but everybody's on the internet. And, you know, when he, looking back at when someone was in high school, it's hard to really judge their character based on what they did in high school because everyone's kind of an idiot when you're growing up. So I think that's definitely forgivable. And it's nice to see that his draft stock wasn't affected largely by that. Although I think that had he been a lower tier quarterback, things may not have gone as well. His skill uh, definitely speaks for itself and helped him to get drafted in the top 10 uh and the the number one josh off the board in fact as uh because as we as we move on josh rosen was drafted by the cardinals number 10 overall he'll be sitting behind the likes of sam bradford and mike glennon uh with time to develop uh what do you what do you think of the number two josh in the draft Corey? you know he may have been the number two selected josh but not only do I think that Josh Rosen is the number one Josh in this draft, I think he's the number one quarterback. I think a lot of, so of, 
of the top four, five, however many quarterbacks you want to expand to, everyone had flaws. Josh Rosen's main cons in the eyes of NFL scouts is that he's too intelligent. He cares too much about things outside of football. I know he had some injury concerns at UCLA. I know he had some minor character concerns. I think Baker Mayfield kind of took those away. Uh, I know as a freshman, he had a hot tub in his dorm room. But for the most part, Josh Rosen head-to-head beat Sam or outplayed Sam Darnold. His team wasn't quite good enough to win. But I do think going to Arizona, he, he is now going to be following in the footsteps of Carson Palmer. He has Sam Bradford ahead of him. And I know a couple podcasts ago, we were joking around about how Bradford is like the one of the most overpaid players in NFL history. He is. But Bradford has shown success when he's been able to stay healthy. I think he's a great quarterback for uh, Josh Rosen to be able to develop under. And I definitely think that Rosen and his comments that there were three mistakes ahead of me, referring to... Uh, to Mayfield, Darnold, and Allen, who were drafted ahead of him, could very much ring true within a few years. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think we could see Josh Rosen take the starting job this season. We have Sam Bradford. You probably got six games before he gets hurt, and then six more games before Glennon gets benched. Next thing you know, Josh Rosen is playing some, uh, you know, those garbage time games to end the season, and maybe looking uh, promising heading into his sophomore year. Uh, I, I think the quarterback position is just so hard to predict uh, that these top four guys really have an equal chance of becoming relevant or not. They all are in a situation where they could potentially not have to play immediately, uh, even if they're the you know highest potential quarterback on their team. Uh, it, it's just really we're going to have to see how these teams handle this young talent. Uh, do, you, do you think that this was a worthy – year to have the most quarterbacks draft like four quarterbacks in the top 10 you know i think it's it's tough to evaluate these guys as non-nfl players and how they will they will be as nfl players Um, i know that we have seen draft classes with a lot of quarterbacks and a lot of them turn out to be busts i think one that comes to mind is the 2011 draft and that one in particular because so you had Cam Newton goes number one overall. Uh, he separated himself from the pack. I don't know if it's reasonable to say that Baker Mayfield separated himself from the pack just because the Browns thought he was the number one guy. Uh, but then beyond those or beyond Newton, you had a bunch of like Pro Bowl players that were taken early. You had Von Miller, Marcel Darius immediately following him, uh, and as you go down the line, you start having more teams taking the other quarterbacks and reaching on them. And those quarterbacks included Blaine Gabbert going to the Jaguars. Uh, you had Jake Locker to the Titans, Christian Ponder to the Vikings. And I think it's very possible we could end up in that situation again this year, but I do think that a lot of a quarterback's success in the way that they are valued in the NFL has to do with the situation they're thrown into as rookies. Oftentimes you see guys thrown in too early, they have too much pressure, they're not ready, and they flame out. Uh, and it will be interesting to see how these teams approach the situation because all four of Cleveland, the Jets, Buffalo, and Arizona 
And then going down the line, Baltimore, who took Lamar Jackson with the 32nd pick, have five capable quarterbacks who can start week one. Yeah. Will they continue to start them come week five, week 10, week 15? Or are we going to see fan bases who are disappointed in the situation clamoring for the rookies eight again? And they're just not in the ideal position to succeed and it'll affect uh you know going forward that the way that they're viewed uh so i think a lot of it with this draft given that a lot of these guys are considered projects it'll really depend on how how quickly teams rush them into the starting role i think if one of these quarterbacks is actually able to sit and develop for a year or two then they'll be more successful than the guy who gets thrown in week four on an own three team that is just looking for some kind of spark that he's not able to provide well Speaking of Lamar Jackson, 32nd overall pick, in my opinion, a bit of a steal here for the Ravens to get him at the very end of the first round. Their quarterback of the future, no real rush for him to take the starting job away from Joe Flacco. He'll have time to sit on the bench, learn from a Super Bowl winning quarterback, some would say an elite level quarterback, and uh, have an opportunity to come in and be the, be the future of this franchise. Well, you say that, but Joe Flacco is uh, coming up on a contract year, so it'll be interesting to see if the Ravens do actually look to re-sign him or if they're ready to just move on to Lamar Jackson and throw him out there next year. Um, But I I do think him falling in number 32, there was a lot of questions as to where he would go. Some teams didn't even think he was an NFL quarterback. Um, So Baltimore clearly values him a lot if they're going to trade up to the first round having just selected a different player seven picks earlier uh so i do expect jackson to be on the field sooner rather than later despite the fact that he is a backup to a super bowl winning quarterback right and of course there was that talk about in the nfl people not seeing uh you know like lamar jackson obviously african-american and people not valuing him as high because of that i think that that's totally ridiculous the nfl is a meritocracy if you can get out there and play ball people are going to want you to play for their team and i know that he none of these players have had an opportunity to play nfl football yet and on draft day it makes it seem like the guys who get drafted first are obviously the better players it's all about what you go out there and actually do so Lamar Jackson has just as much of a chance as any of the quarterbacks that went in the top 10 to get out there and prove that he deserves he's the best quarterback in this draft class. So I think it's a much ado about nothing, part, partially part of the social climate of our time. Uh, you know, here in 2018, people are very focused on race. Uh, but I think that it's a, a lot, a, much ado about nothing. Lamar Jackson is going to get his chance, and uh, that's when he'll, you know, he'll have his chance to prove that you know 31 teams missed on him yeah he's a a former heisman winner with a big arm fast legs and definitely has a lot of potential uh, especially on a a, in an organization with such a winning tradition like the baltimore ravens so speaking of winning traditions the only the sixth quarterback here that we're talking about and the only one outside of the first round that i care about mason rudolph also out of the state of oklahoma in fact out of Oklahoma State. Uh, he went in the third round, 12th pick in the third round to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Is he the quarterback of the future for the Pittsburgh Steelers? I think the Steelers hope he is. I think the Steelers think he is. I don't know uh, if 
he's a guy who could be ready to play this season if Ben Roethlisberger gets injured, uh, or even next season for that matter, and be able to be successful enough to carry on the the uh, winning ways of the Steelers of the past few years, going to the AFC Championship game in 2016, winning 13 games last year. Uh, I think I've had mixed thoughts on this pick. When it first happened, I wasn't a big fan of the Steelers taking a quarterback, not necessarily taking Mason Rudolph specifically, but they have Ben Roethlisberger saying he wants to play another three or four years. Now, obviously, he has contemplated retirement multiple times in recent times, but given the fact that he's saying three, four years, I don't know if we're going to be in that situation uh, anytime soon where Roethlisberger has a bad game and tells the media he's going to quit. And after him, you have Landry Jones, who started to become a competent backup. He played really well in Week 17 last year against the Browns without... Le'Veon Bell without Antonio Brown uh, and a lot of the the players who were on the the Steelers inactives were starting Pro Bowl offensive players but Jones is not the answer as a long-term starting quarterback for any team that wants to compete but then you drafted Josh Dobbs last year in the fourth round so that tells me that the Steelers really question his ability to even be a backup in the future and I think that his his place on the roster is the one that is most in doubt with Rudolph coming in. So I'm going to be hoping that Rudolph is a guy. But my thought is with quarterbacks, the second and the third round, there's not a whole lot of success when you look around the NFL. Uh, you had Russell Wilson went in the third round a few years ago to the Seahawks, and he, he obviously turned out to be an amazing selection for them. Yep. But the majority of the starting quarterbacks were first-round picks you had a couple guys like your Dak Prescotts, your Kirk Cousins, your Tom Brady's, your Case Keenum's that become starters despite being drafted late or not even at all. Uh, but that second and third round, you kind of have to wonder, well, hey, why wasn't this guy a first-round pick? There were some people who thought Rudolph was a first-round pick. Maybe he was a steal falling all the way in the third round. The Steelers trade up to get him. They see something in him. So I'm going to believe uh, that he is he's the guy. I don't think they would trade up for him if they think that he's just a long-term backup. But there are other quarterbacks who they could have taken in the first round next year. So maybe they just don't want to use a first-round pick on a quarterback knowing they do have other needs on the defensive side of the ball. Agreed. And Well, one thing that Mason Rudolph does have going for him is he led FBS in passing yards in 2017 with 4,904 yards. That's obviously nothing to sneeze at. Although he did play in the Big 12, and we all know yeah. the Big 12 doesn't play defense. So no. he's, uh, I-, I think he's a really intriguing pick, and we'll see if he ends up ever playing meaningful snaps for the Steelers. I think that mm-hmm. he does play meaningful snaps uh, somewhere, someday in yeah. the NFL. We'll, we'll have to see. Uh, yeah, so- one thing, the, the Steelers did use their second-round pick on James Washington, who was uh, the Bolitnikoff winner. Uh, Rudolph's favorite target at Oklahoma State so there is a potential to keep that connection going uh definitely excited to have Washington on board at the very least right and so and that's a great segue on to our next topic which is just top picks picks that we liked uh that aren't quarterbacks from this draft and I'll get us started off 
with Saquon Barkley. And I think that Saquon kind of, uh, people slept on him a little bit or maybe just got tired of talking about him because he was kind of the consensus top player in this draft. He's a slam dunk at running back, and uh, he was going to do well no matter where he went, or at least you you think he could do well no matter where he went. And I am just so excited to see him and Odell Beckham Jr. playing in the same offense, giving making Eli Manning's job that much easier. Yeah, Saquon's problem was not only was he a not a quarterback, but he was a running back. So you had people saying he's the number one player in the draft, but you have teams that have needs at quarterback, and you have people saying oh running backs you can get value later in the draft but Barkley is a a once in a generation player uh, and I think Barkley is gonna be phenomenal with the Giants even if you know Eli Manning is past his great days there I think that he'll he'll keep that offense interesting and a difficult one to face and like you mentioned Odell Beckham Jr. there that could be a very fun duo uh, for years to come agreed agreed Uh, I also had uh Quentin Nelson. I I was actually hoping that this guy would fall to the Niners. Unfortunately, the Colts took full advantage of their sixth pick, uh, sixth overall pick, and uh, grabbed this generational guard. I think that beefing up that O-line is super important for the Colts. If If last year is any indication, no quarterback can really survive being in that backfield. So drafting Quentin Nelson, I think, will shore up a portion of that line for the next decade. Yeah, definitely a great pick. The Colts felt confident enough in Andrew Luck's health to trade back from the third to the sixth pick, not entertain the idea of taking a quarterback. We'll see if Luck is finally healthy to come out and play another season. But if he is, the Colts are going to be a a very good football team, evidenced by when he was actually playing 16 games a season. Having an offensive line is necessary, though. I I am absolutely blown away at how long Andrew Luck has been out with injury it's 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 honestly depressing because he's such an amazing player when he is healthy uh and at this point I could I mean I'm not even certain that he'll play again I know the Colts are hopeful but it's uh a lot of players don't sit for this long no it's it's uh definitely going to be one of the bigger storylines again of this offseason heading into next year uh see what happens with Mr. Luck um, but another player who we just skipped over that uh, I'm a big fan of, partially just living in Raleigh, uh, being around NC State, I've gotten to know the name Bradley Chubb a lot. The Broncos, I think a lot of people thought they would be willing to trade out of the top 10. Uh, they were sitting at number 5. They had a deal in place with Buffalo, but Chubb was still on the board, which they were not expecting. So they snatched him. I think Chubb and Von Miller on a defensive line together could be scary, uh, having both of those guys coming at you from the outside. So definitely going to need a great defense in Denver if they're going to have any hope of uh, succeeding and competing in the AFC West this year. Agreed. I, I, Chubb, obviously a great player. A lot of people were high on him in this uh in this uh, leading up to this draft and it's almost unfair to have him paired up with Von Miller so another great pick another uh player that I think is uh, is going to be added uh to a, a decent pair is uh Deron Payne out of Alabama drafted by the Redskins Redskins 13th overall D tackle he was dominant in the college football game uh playing for Alabama obviously Alabama's defense full of NFL draft picks 
And uh, Deron Payne gets to join his former teammate, Jonathan Allen, who was drafted in the first round by the Redskins last year. Uh, and I'm always a fan of reuniting college teammates. So uh, I think that'll be an interesting uh, pairing there for the Redskins D-line. And uh, hopefully they'll have that chemistry moving forward. Yeah, lots of great Alabama defensive players in this draft. And uh, it'll definitely be be interesting to see what Washington does up front. You know, they missed out on Indomitian Sioux in free agency. They're going young by getting Deron Payne, teaming up with Jonathan Allen, who I think was widely considered the biggest steal of last year's draft, uh, despite not having the greatest rookie season. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens with those two. Uh, also, the another st- and what I, I think might have been the biggest steal of the first round was uh, Derwin James, uh, 17th mm-hmm. overall to the Chargers. The Chargers get a day one starter uh, with the 17th pick overall. I had... I saw Derwin James going in the top 10 in many mock drafts, and to have him slide all the way to 17, the Chargers' secondary looks scary uh, for the next season. Yeah, I was shocked that James fell as far as he did. I thought for sure that he was going to go number 7 to the Bucks. then the Bucks traded back. I thought somebody was going to grab him. Uh, you had Oakland traded back. Miami decided to take Minka Fitzpatrick, a different safety instead. Uh, so James just continued to fall. The Bucks passed on him again at number 12, and then he ends up in L.A. Trey Boston had a great season last year, uh, but they didn't want to commit to him long-term. He's still a free agent. They have uh, Derwin James, very viable replacement for the next five years. So definitely uh, another weapon for a Chargers team that is looking like they could be back in the playoffs for the first time in a few years. Yes, definitely looking like one of the scarier teams in the AFC West. Uh for another AFC team that I think had a good first round, uh, their other pick, the Ravens chose Hayden Hurst with the 25th uh, pick in the first round, a South Carolina boy. And it's always good to see us, uh, one of the South Carolina alum going in the first round. But I think that he'll, he'll truly be a security blanket for Joe Flacco as he is a, uh, he is a threat as a receiver. And also a pretty good blocker. So I, I, I think we'll see a whole lot of Hayden Hurst in his rookie season for the Ravens. Yeah, I love Hayden Hurst as a, a fellow Gamecock. Definitely disappointed that he went to my rival Baltimore Ravens. Uh, but at 25 years old, it'll be interesting to see uh, how being older than your typical rookie has an effect on his career. But seeing as we have plenty of tight ends in the NFL who have had uh, great success into their later years. I, I don't think that's going to stop him one bit. Agreed. Uh, I'm ready to move on to my questionable picks, unless you have any more pr- top picks. Uh, I think I'm also ready to go into the questionable uh, aspects of the, the first round. So. Okay, well, I'll get us started off with my own team. The 49ers had the ninth pick in this draft, and they went with offensive tackle Mike McGlinchey. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm -hmm. And for me, this was a bit of a surprise. I I think that uh, drafting McGlinchey was important for the future, as we are, you know, priority numero uno is protecting uh, Jimmy G in the backfield. However, the 49ers have a a starting center in Weston Richburg, which we just traded to, uh, to get him. And then Joe Staley, one of the longest-tenured 49ers uh, at left tackle, 
although he is aging. Uh, we have a young, we had young talent in Trent Brown at right tackle. So this this uh, draft pick was a bit of a head scratcher to most 49ers fans. Although Kyle Shanahan and uh, John Lynch already had their minds made up that they were going to move some pieces around. Uh, at first, this seemed like maybe the heir apparent for the left tackle position take over for Joe Staley, although Mike McGlinchey is a right tackle. So there was question marks as to whether or not he would able would be able to switch to the left tackle role. He's not going to have to do that as the Niners went ahead and traded Trent Brown to the Patriots later on in the draft. Uh, and so Mike McGlinchey was going to be expected to be the day one starter at right tackle. I understand that protecting... Jimmy Grappolo is very important, but it all it doesn't seem like that much of a step forward to replace already a promising right tackle with an equally promising right tackle. So uh, the Niners have a lot of needs. There, there's a lot of building. As a fan, I trust John Lynch. He's done so well so far. Uh, but this one for me was a bit of a head scratcher. Yeah, there there's certainly um, sometimes when. You feel like teams are drafting uh, for the future when they should be drafting for the now. And it seemed like this was a situation in San Francisco. Uh, I thought for sure that they were going to take Minka Fitzpatrick here, uh, or at least another defensive back. Uh, definitely a little surprising they took McGlinchey, but Notre Dame had two offensive linemen taken in the top 10. So I think that, you know, having traded Trent Brown, it makes things a little clearer in what San Francisco sees in McGlinchey. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if uh, he's that much of an upgrade over Trent Brown. Yes, and while I'm criticizing the 49ers, I guess I, w- I should say who I would rather have had at this pick. With things in the air with Reuben Foster, while things have actually looked kind of good, as M- Reuben Foster's girlfriend has claimed that uh, she lied and that Reuben d- didn't inflict the wounds that she had, I would rather have seen Tremaine Edmonds at this pick. Tremaine Edmonds was still on the board, and for me, he was the most promising linebacker in this draft. I know a lot of people had uh, Roquan Smith as their uh, number one like linebacker, but as an insurance policy at middle linebacker, I would have liked to see Tremaine Edmonds here. Um, although, I got it. I'll trust in John Lynch to see uh, what he, ha- you know, what he sees in McGlinchey. Yeah, just a, a quick comment. I didn't want to spend too much time on our favorite picks, but Tremaine Edmonds was a guy that I thought about throwing out there. I think Buffalo, uh, getting him at 16 was a little bit of a steal. So, Agreed. Agreed. Um, I think, for me, a question mark. Not necessarily saying that he's not a talented player uh, or that he doesn't fit a position of need, but I think it was a little surprising to see Denzel Ward go number four to Cleveland. Uh, I think a lot of people just kind of assumed that if Barkley uh, went to the Giants at two, they would either try to trade the pick or maybe go with Bradley Chubb. Uh, they they go with Ward. I think uh, a little bit of a reach, but uh, Ohio State cornerbacks have had a lot of success in the NFL. So he's a, a local kid. We'll see how he does in Cleveland. Agreed. If he can emulate Marshawn Lattimore in any way, I think this pick is will pay off. The Browns do need to get better at cornerback. Uh, I personally think Ward is uh, a pretty good pick at four, but uh, the the Browns did have a lot of options there. Uh, for me, the next I, I like there's a lot of people in the first round that I wasn't that I didn't know very well, especially towards the end. Uh, but for me, I think that Rashad Penny 
was an interesting mm-hmm. pick for the Seahawks at 27, especially because one of his biggest uh, weaknesses that uh, scouts had for him was his pass blocking. And that, that Seahawks offensive line is one of the worst in the league. And while Russell Wilson is good at scrambling around and making the plays himself, part of the reason why he has to do that is because they can't find a reliable answer at running back. Maybe Rashad Penny is that guy. Maybe there's something the Seahawks front office sees in him. Uh, but I personally don't see it. So that one for me is a just a tiny bit of a head-scratcher. I know that's pretty nitpicky as it is the end of the first round. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm not sure if he was the, the best running back available at that yeah. point. I agree. I think running back uh, was a position of need for Seattle. I think the the uh, selection itself uh, in Rashad Penny was a, a little bit of a surprise, and there were certainly other other areas that they could have addressed. But they chose to tr- trade back from eighteen to twenty seven, so they they clearly had something in mind when they were making that move. Um, so we'll see how Penny does. I think he could easily be the the Seahawks number one running back, given that their leading rusher last season only had two hundred forty yards. Um, provided that but, he stays healthy because there's yes, just a, yeah, there's which an was another issue with Seattle <laughs> guys not not staying on the field um, and then another another running back in the first round who uh, I do think was a bit of a questionable pick was Sony Michelle going number 31 to the Patriots not necessarily saying that Sony Michelle is not going to be a great player I just think that the Patriots have shown that they have a lot of success in having backfields by committee so it seems interesting to me that they would use a first round pick on a player uh where they not necessarily don't value the position but they don't they don't think that they only need one guy to get by they would rather have a a big committee uh deon lewis definitely had a a phenomenal year last year and he left in free agency so this kind of helps fill that role Uh, i do think the patriots made a much better position or pick with their other Georgia player in the first round as a win offensive tackle 23rd overall uh we'll see how Michelle does though he could easily in that offense you know playing behind Tom Brady and the Patriots he could be amazing there uh so I think it really just depends how much the Patriots actually use him in terms of how we're going to value this one I agree I think that the Patriots do such a good job of finding value in running backs that other teams seemingly can't get to produce and then turning them into stars, and then also sending them off after their time with the Patriots so that other teams can overpay them and not get as much as the Patriots got out of them. I think Sony Michelle is a good candidate to be uh, a productive member of a committee backfield. I know that his number one, uh, his first round uh, pedigree makes it seem like maybe the Patriots are committing to uh, more of a feature back role, but I could easily see him joining the committee and producing just like any number of the running backs did in that committee backfield last year. Yep. Um, and uh, I do have one more first round pick I want to throw out there. Okay. That not necessarily this is a bad pick or a questionable pick, but I think this was one of the more intriguing uh, selections the entire first round. So at 14, the Green Bay Packers were on the clock. And then they announced that the Saints have traded up from 27 to 14, traded the following year's first round pick, and that they were on the clock. Everyone on the TV, like on the set, was like, all right, the Saints are drafting Lamar Jackson. They're taking their quarterback of the future here. And then they take Marcus Davenport, defensive end out of Texas San Antonio, who a lot of people thought was a one of the stud defenders in this draft. Um, 
certainly could have even gone higher than 14. I just thought it was so funny just how everyone is like Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson, and then they take a defensive end. So uh, it's definitely one of one of the uh, more intriguing moments of the draft. But with that, let's move on to the NBA playoffs. And last time we talked about the first round and gave our predictions for all of those series. Uh, but now we're going to move on into the second round. And before we do that, I would like to note that I was 8 for 8 in my first round selections. Uh, ben did not have nearly the same success with his. So uh, take what he has to say with a grain of salt and know that what I have to say is probably more likely to be right. Well, I don't completely agree with that. It was a disappointing uh, first round for me. Although, a small caveat to that, I was at game five uh, for the Thunder Jazz series, and while the Thunder ended up ultimately ended up losing that series, they did have a historic comeback in game five, 25 points down in the third quarter, Russell Westbrook and Playoff P, uh, or the player formerly known as Playoff P, uh, had huge nights and uh, brought the Thunder back to a victory in Game 5 to to the roar of a tremendous sellout crowd in Chesapeake Arena. Uh, the best game I went to all season and the biggest Thunder comeback win in their history. So uh, even though it was definitely a disappointing series overall, I definitely enjoyed being there at that game. But let's quickly forget round one and get <laughs> into round two. Uh, started off with the Raptors-Cavs series, uh, which has a lot of drama involving LeBron James. Yeah, so the Cleveland Cavaliers had a hard-fought seven-game series against the Indiana Pacers in the first round. Indiana came out and won game one by 18 points, and the rest of the way, LeBron was fighting and fighting, and mostly fighting by himself. Uh, he played 40 minutes or more in all every game but game six, and none of his teammates scored 20 or more points in a single game in the series, yet LeBron did enough to win. Yes, it's. I think moving forward, if the Cavs want to get anything done as they're playing better and better competition more than just LeBron James has to show up to these games uh, especially when they go to Toronto as the Raptors are a team that know how to defend their home court with uh, going 36 and 7 at home this year and not dropping a single game at home during their opening series so uh, a tall order for the Cavs and I think uh, a necess- they, they have to win in Toronto if they expect to win this series. Well, they, te- they obviously have to, but they also uh, they, they need to go in with that as their mindset. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that if, if the Raptors defend home court, especially in games one and game two, if they leave Toronto, head back to Cle- or head to Cleveland up 2-0, at the very least, they're coming back to Toronto for game five and they're going back to Cleveland again for game six. So they're extending the series. If it's one-to-one even, and you have to go and win a game in Cleveland just to get home court back, you could easily find yourselves down three-to-one, and who knows if you're going to make it to game six at that point. So I think for the Raptors, uh, if they want to prove that they're unlike previous playoff Raptors teams, they are the 36-7 the and seven at home team they were in the regular season they gotta beat cleveland at the air canada center 
Agreed. This is their best chance in history to beat LeBron James in the playoffs, and they have to take advantage. Yeah, so Toronto, they're one of the deeper teams in the NBA. They have lots of guys coming off the bench contributing. Uh, DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry both had phenomenal series against Washington. Everything is there for the taking for the Raptors, you know, especially given the fact that uh, Cleveland struggled as much as they did against a Pacers team that is not as good as the Raptors. But are we going to see a repeat series from Cleveland? Is nobody else going to help LeBron again, and it'll only be a matter of time before he flames out? Or are we going to see the team that you and I and a lot of other people think are still the best team in the East and have been for the last three years? Yes. So, yes, for that reason, I mean, just LeBron James alone is the reason why I can't pick the Raptors here, and I've got to go with the Cavs in six. I think if anyone can go to Toronto and win, it's LeBron James, and uh, I think that they'll end up winning this series. Yeah, I want to be the guy who correctly predicts that the Raptors are going to win this series, but it honestly would not shock me if Cleveland just comes out on fire and quickly takes care of the Raptors and route to another uh, trip to the NBA Finals. I'm going to go with Cleveland in six. I want to say Toronto in seven. Raptors, this is your chance. You know, If you're going to beat LeBron, this is when it's going to happen. If not, they're going to be in for a lot of uh, soul-searching in the offseason. But I'm going to go with Cavs in six. Definitely looking forward to this series, though. I cannot wait to see what we get out of this. But our next series, moving forward, we have Celtics against the Sixers. And uh, this game, has, we've actually already seen one game from this series. Uh, Scary Terry uh, helped lead his Celtics to a win uh, as they hosted the first game. Corey, how are you feeling about your Celtics in this series? You know, a lot of people were down on the Celtics entering the postseason. Uh, I did not think that the Bucks were all that good of a team. And I know the Celtics are without Kyrie Irving. They've been without Gordon Hayward all season, so not having in the playoffs doesn't change that. Uh, they were without Marcus Smart. Last night, they were without Jalen Brown. Brad Stevens, to me, without a doubt, is a top-two coach in the NBA at this point. And going into the series, I felt like he was the difference maker. That Philly had a lot of young talented but inexperienced guys and Boston had a lot of young talented but inexperienced guys when you look at Brad Stevens versus Brett Brown I give the advantage to Stevens so I know a lot of people are are really anti-Celtics at this point and thinking that Philly is maybe the best team in the east but uh, I really do think that the Celtics are going to continue to surprise people in this series well, I, I think the Sixers come in with a lot of star power, obviously still hot with that the way they ended the regular season, uh, getting that winning a playoff series. The Sixers are a good team, but the Celtics have just proven everybody wrong so far. Everybody, I, I mean, I was among the doubters that said the Celtics would easily be out in the first round. So I have a tough time calling this a series. I think that really anything can happen, but... As a result of the star power on the Sixers and how hot they were at the end of the season, I've got to go with the Sixers in six, um, partially because I think they're the better team, but also partially because I have to spite you, Corey, after your team <laughs> made it out of the first round and mine uh, definitely didn't. <laughs> you know, you tried to do that last series by picking Milwaukee and that didn't work out for you. Uh, you know, I could go on about Brad Stevens for a while. Uh, 
um, and just like the success of Al Horford as the team's only all-star, the way that Jalen Brown, Terry Rozier, and Jason Tatum have played in the postseason. But I'm going to leave us with one little uh, factoid. So the last team that wore a green jersey was without their star player number 11 for the entire playoffs and was underdogs in the first two rounds despite having home field advantage went on to win the Super Bowl. That was the Philadelphia Eagles and I think that the Celtics could be the NBA's Eagles. I'm going with the Celtics over the Sixers and seven and they're not going to stop there. Maybe might just be a homer pick on my end, but I, I do think that given what we saw in game one, the Celtics are, are going to edge Philly in seven at the very least. That is bold, and I like it. Uh, so yeah. this, the Celtics in, in seven, you said? Celtics in seven. Celtics in seven, I like yes. it. All right. Yeah, my, my favorite part about the analogy is that uh, the team that the Eagles beat in the Super Bowl, the Patriots, like a lot of Patriots fans are Celtics fans, so I can be happy about the, the Patriots losing in that analogy, but also be happy about the Celtics winning in it. Yes, so. and uh, and I, I don't think we can leave out the Drew Bloodsoe reference yep, going yep. on between uh, Terry Rozier and uh, what's his name from Eric Milwaukee. Bledsoe. Eric Bledsoe, yes. Yeah, and that's so. something that he's he's continuing on. Definitely a big fan of that. So yes, I thought that was hilarious. But okay, and I and I gotta say I'm really excited about this series as well. I think mm-hmm. that uh, both series in the West are, I mean East are extremely entertaining, and it's definitely uh, two series I'm gonna try to catch as much of as possible. Uh, moving forward to a series that I think is gonna be much less entertaining is the Warriors Pelicans series. After the Pelicans with a. Uh, you know, winning in the first round, a lot of people may be counting them out, uh, but they they made it here, and uh, now they're going up against the Warriors. Yes, and not only are they going up against the Warriors, but they are now going up against the Warriors with Steph Curry. Did not play in Game 1, didn't matter. Uh, Golden State won that game 123-101. to Now Curry is back tonight. I don't know how healthy he's going to be. I don't know how great he's going to be. They said he's not playing on a minutes restriction, but I can't imagine that the Warriors would rush him back uh, if he wasn't capable of coming out and performing at his best. So I do think after uh, what the Pelicans were able to do in Portland, uh, where we could see the exact opposite of that at this point um, with, with Golden State just totally dominating the Pelicans. So... Uh, it, it will be interesting because uh, the Pelicans, they, as a sixth seed, pulled off a sweep of the Trailblazers. They're the uh, lowest seeded team to sweep a series since 2001 when the Hornets swept the Heat in three games back when it was best of five in the first round. Um, Anthony Davis totally took over. Uh, he's looking like a true star. Uh, Drew Holiday. Phenomenal series. Rajon Rondo, playoff Rondo. is He's a different specimen. Average a double-double against Portland. But the Trailblazers and the Warriors are not on the same level. I'm going to say New Orleans seals a game at home, but I'm going with Golden State in five. I think with uh, Curry healthy, Draymond playing as well as he was, uh, you know, Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant, this just won't be a very entertaining series like you said. Yes, and I've been. I feel like I've given the Pelicans so much disrespect this uh, <laughs> th- this postseason, and I I thought what they did in the first round was inspired. And obviously, I respect the brow 
that Anthony Davis brings to every game. Uh, but I'm sorry, I have to go Warriors in four. The disrespect continues because <laughs> the Warriors are playing postseason ball again, and they just got Steph Curry back. I don't think there's anything that can stop them right now. Uh, I think they sweep the series. Yep. So our final series, we have the number one-seeded Houston Rockets going up against the five-seeded Utah Jazz. We touched on the Jazz a little bit earlier when you were talking about the Thunder, uh, who lost to the Jazz in six games. Rookie Donovan Mitchell totally went off, uh, 28 points per game, and he's looking like the real deal going forward. But... I think Utah is in a similar boat as New Orleans where they're just going up against a way better team that they just cannot compete with. Agreed. I think that the Jazz are a young team that has a lot of potential. I liked what I saw from Donovan Mitchell. A That guy is a different breed of rookie. Uh, but don't. Uh, but you got to give credit to the rest of that team because they, they didn't just play through Donovan Mitchell. Uh, they had... Uh, Rubio, Ricky Rubio, distributing and uh, contributing through points. They had uh, Joe Ingles, who was sinking threes all over the place. Uh, Jay Crowder was getting involved with points. And uh, Rudy Gobert plays some amazing defense in the paint, almost basically uh, taking Steven Adams and Russell Westbrook's drives completely out of the series uh, when there was a considerable difference between the Thunder playing against the Jazz defense with Gobert and the Thunder with uh, playing against the Jazz defense without Gobert. That 25-point comeback happened when Gobert was in foul trouble late in the game, and that was a key reason why the Thunder were able to get back into that game. Uh, for that reason, I think that the Jazz have a the potential to steal one at home, You know, play some lights-out defense, and potentially get a, a moral victory against this Rockets team that's definitely better than them in a lot of ways. Uh, I think that the Rockets win this series in five. Yeah, I think the the Jazz are a very talented team. Gobert is a monster down low. Uh, you had obviously Mitchell, but beyond him, Joe Ingles, Jay Crowder, but Ricky Rubio getting injured in Game Six. I think that was that will turn out to be a killer in Utah's chances against Houston. I think if he's healthy, the Jazz have a chance of taking this series um, to six, maybe even a full seven games. But I think without him on the court, they're really going to struggle. I'm also going with Houston in five. So uh, with that, we have our uh, NBA playoff second round wrapped up. And we're ready to cover the NHL playoffs, which Ah, are also underway in the second round. So, Ben, you're not the biggest hockey fan. That is correct. That is putting it lightly. But... You, you know, looking at what the Vegas Golden Knights have done, just from a, any sports perspective, uh, you you have to be just wowed. Agreed. No, and, and here's the thing. As a fan of, uh, of teams in other leagues, of teams that are not expansion teams, I can't imagine how frustrating it would be to have an expansion team come in and have the success that uh, – the Golden Knights have had right off the bat, especially if you're a, te- a fan of one of these, uh, a terrible team that has to be mediocre uh, for years and years and years. And to see this team enter the league and have immediate success must be the most frustrating thing in the world. Yeah, for the the Knights, uh, they won 51, 51 games this year, 109 points. 
They're the first expansion team to make the playoffs since 1979-1980 in the NHL. And back then, 16 out of 21 teams made the postseason. They're competing with 30 other teams. Uh, Just unprecedented what they did and what they've been able to accomplish. William Carlson had 16 goals in his first two-plus seasons in the league. He had 43 for them this year alone. And I know there's a lot of talks that the this expansion draft format was favorable to Vegas, that they had more potential players to select from that were unprotected by other teams than most expansion teams in the past. But nobody expected this team to compete for a playoff berth. The, them, they themselves didn't think they would be a playoff team for at least three years. So the fact that they have done what they have done, sweeping the LA Kings in the first round, now of a 2-1 to series lead over the San Jose Sharks, only two wins away from going to the Western Conference Finals. It's uh, truly a remarkable story and really interesting to see what they do going forward because Las Vegas is a fun city and can be a very attractive free agency destination. Yes, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting into these Las Vegas teams left and right, especially in leagues that I don't particularly care much for, as uh, we talked about in the last podcast, becoming a uh, low-key aces fan las vegas aces fan as a result of asia wilson's uh number one draft pick there yeah so uh i think for the the golden knights uh, i do think they're going to continue this run for a little while uh and i'm really curious to see what point um they they do eventually run into a, a team which i think in the the central division uh the winnipeg jets and the national predators are two of the best teams if not the two best teams in the nhl but certainly a great story no matter how far uh, the knights go at this point uh so moving on another series uh that i would like to to cover is the penguins versus the capitals the third straight season these two teams are meeting in the second round the penguins despite being the lower seed won the past two years 2016 in six games 2017 in seven games and went on to win the stanley cup finals in both seasons meanwhile the capitals have not reached the eastern conference finals since 1998 and certainly have not done it uh, despite having alexander ovechkin one of the best players in the league so ben what are your thoughts just looking in on you know, seeing two of the best players in the league and having it just be so one-sided for all this time. Well, I, I, the the thing about hockey that I, I, I that I'm not super certain on is how much one player can change a whole team. Because I understand they have like 22 guys on each side, and all of them see playing time. Uh, so, I, for for me as a very 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 casual fan of the sport, uh, I think that you can only rely so much on one player when you have such a large team of contributors yeah i think uh washington certainly has a lot a lot more talent outside of ovechkin uh the the penguins certainly do outside of crosby as well Uh, i think it this could be the year for the capitals and i think a lot of people believe that because in the past they've been the number one team in the entire league and they've just dealt with all that pressure uh that's not the case for them this year and the, the two teams split games one and game two in Washington. So uh, looking, looking beyond that, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if uh, this is finally the year. As a Penguins fan, I, I certainly hope that Pittsburgh is able to uh, fight them off once again. 
So uh, now that we, we've kind of addressed some of the more popular teams in hockey, uh, so Ben, as you keep saying, you're a very casual hockey fan. Have you watched a playoff hockey game in your life? Yes, I watched okay. back in the summer of uh, 2014, I believe I watched a match, and uh, it was with the, there's a very famous commentator, I'm not, I don't remember his name, but he's known well for his uh, his uh, use of language. He has very colorful vocabulary, potentially. Yes, uh, he was at, Probably. Uh, if you're saying that, I'm going to go ahead and say yes, it probably was okay. him. And I was just blown away, really, by the commentating. Uh, so that's basically why I sat and watched, because I was so blown away. But other than that, yeah, very light exposure to hockey. Well, I guess there's uh, my first talking point. So Doc Emmerich, to me, is my favorite of the major network uh, broadcasters. You know, In football, you have your, your Jim Nance and your uh, Al Michaels and your... Joe Buck, uh, Joe Buck in baseball as well. And in the NBA, you have Mike Breen. Uh, to me, Doc Emmerich, just the way that he's able to talk about a game, the way he's able to bring in excitement, like you said, the colorful language. He is the guy that you listen to when you watch a major hockey game. And I think just the broadcast itself right there is a reason that uh, the NHL playoffs, watching them is so great. And then when you look beyond just at the game itself, uh, every single night, it seems like there's a game going to overtime. You rarely see just a string of blowouts, uh, even between the best team and the worst team. Last year, the National Predators were the worst team record-wise in the Western Conference, and they made it all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals. The LA Kings, in eight, as an eight seed in 2012, won the Stanley Cup Finals. And that's just not something that you see in other sports. You look at the NBA right now. Yeah, we've been saying it. A lot of people have been saying it. The whole season, it's Houston versus Golden State. And it would be absolutely shocking and would be a great story if New Orleans or Utah is able to prevent that. Nobody thinks that's going to happen. And based on what we've seen through just one game in the series, it's inconceivable to think that will happen. And while the East has a little more parity this year because Cleveland isn't as good, we're still looking at the top four teams remaining. Sure, Hockey has a lot more... Uh, opportunities for upsets now this year not necessarily the best example of that as the only uh non one or two seed to advance to the second round was the three seeded san jose sharks uh but in the past we have seen a lot of times where some of these lower seeded teams who barely fight or barely make the playoffs you know fighting the whole way are able to uh, continue their their late season runs and uh make it deep in the playoffs and that's just not something you see in other sports so, what is your favorite postseason? Well, I guess my favorite postseason would have to be football, but that's also because that's my favorite sport. I think that the NFL does well with parity, although a lot of people would say that the Patriots uh, have too much postseason success to say that the NFL has any meaningful parity. But I, I guess if you take a look at specifically the NFC, uh, which is the conference that my favorite team belongs to, you'll see a lot of parity and a lot of changing of the powers, changing of the guard in general in the NFL. So that's a pretty entertaining postseason right there. Uh, I agree with you that the NBA can be a little bit predictable, which can still be fun, but when you get the best teams and finally you get to see that, that matchup you've been waiting for all year. But uh, I think that having that unpredictability that it sounds like hockey brings is, I would say, better. Uh, I think that you, as a as a 
as a neutral spectator, I would rather have that than having just the the obvious team that's going to win win all the time. Uh, so, and this is why I would say that hockey might have an opportunity to be a better postseason than football is because. I think having more iterations is better. Unfortunately, football is an extremely brutal game. It can only be played once a week at max, and uh, you can't—you just can't have a series in football. Uh, the, the you can hardly call it a series, but you have you play your division opponents twice a year. So being able to take—I mean, how how long are these series in hockey? Best of seven. Best just like in the NBA. Yeah, and that's that is a great amount of games. You really get to—it tells the whole story. It's mm-hmm. not just one upset that defines the matchup, and you have to wait a whole another year to get another shot. It's you really have to be the better team, and I think that that's 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 very intriguing. Yeah, and I won't necessarily go as far as to say that the the NHL is the definitive best postseason, especially with their new playoff format. Uh, I think there's some shortcomings. It is. So the way they have it set up is you have four divisions, and the top gen- the top three teams in each division plus two wild cards from each conference make the playoffs, and you start with your division for the first two rounds. So because of that, you often see the same teams facing each other, and it's only been a thing for the past uh, four or five years now, uh, and that's why we've seen Penguins Capitals three years in a row. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just in terms of, like I said, the predictability – the competitiveness, games going to overtime, having a lot of like long, drawn-out series. Uh, I do agree. The NBA has more star power. Once you get to the end, I think it's a little more exciting to see Warriors-Cavs than Penguins-Predators. But overall, as a postseason, the NHL is certainly uh, more exciting to me than the NBA. Probably the NFL. I think the uh, the NFL has a lot of parity from year to year, but in the postseason itself, lately we've been seeing the number one seeds in the Super Bowl every year. So, um, but I, I don't know if uh, you're gonna start watching hockey now. I think you have to develop a team first. Um, I don't know. I I have mentioned the San Jose Sharks, but. Well, and I am definitely not a San Jose Sharks fan. Uh, just like I'm not a Warriors fan, despite being a Bay Area sports fan in, for baseball and football. But I think I might have to give the the, the Stanley Cup Finals a uh, a watch, if only to hear uh, the commentary. Yeah, Doc Emmerich is certainly one to draw you to uh, the TV. And the, the best part is the... The Stanley Cup Finals are never the same day as the NBA Finals, so you don't have to worry about choosing one or the other. Nice. Um, so with that, uh, we can start moving into our segments and today's top five, where Ben and I will debate our top five favorite Marvel superheroes. Not two, not three, not four. Top five, top five, top five. All right, Corey, why don't you go ahead and get us started off with your number five. Okay, so we are doing this in uh, with the, the release of Avengers Infinity War. And uh, it just came out this weekend, this past weekend. And I'll preface this by saying that I have not yet seen the movie, so there will not be any spoilers on my end. I have seen it, but I respect the movie too much to spoil it for anyone. Go see it, but that's all I'll say about the movie specifically. All right. So uh, with that, we'll, we'll get this underway. 
And my number five is The Incredible Hulk. And uh, one thing that my list kind of does have a little bit more of are the actual Avengers themselves. Uh, the Avengers are, as a series together, uh, my, my favorite Marvel movies, but uh, I've definitely become a huge fan of the Hulk from watching that. Just, uh, you know, growing up, he was he was always a fun fun character, um, but watching those movies, he and just Bruce Banner as a character himself, uh, thrown in the Hulk. But I especially gained appreciation for the Hulk when I went to um, Universal Studios for the first time and rode on the Hulk roller coaster, which was my favorite roller coaster at the park. And that is the, the final reason why the Hulk cr- cracks my top five at number five. Uh, agreed. I I th- I love the inclusion of the roller coaster because the Hulk roller coaster is a great ride. Definitely worth uh, getting on that when you're at Universal Studios. And the Avengers really did make me like the Hulk as a character. Personally, I was not a big fan of his solo movies, but once he joined the squad, he definitely earned a place in my heart as uh, definitely a top tier superhero. Uh, moving on to my number five is Quicksilver from X Men. And the, the thing is, Quicksilver is not, as a character, uh, he's not uh, super interesting to me, but his superpower is one of my favorites in cinema. Uh, he has two amazing scenes in the X-Men series where time, well, time doesn't actually stop. He's just moving super quickly, and they always put it to music, and it's just one of the most fascinating things to see uh, in Days of Future Past when he's in the, uh, in, like, the kitchen, and he's messes with all the guards and in i think it was x-men apocalypse where he uh is a later x-men movie where he saves them all from the uh, uh from the explosion happening in the house by again just going super quickly and it's like nothing you ever see in movies and uh just amazing special effects uh all thanks to his super speed so quicksilver makes it in as my number five superhero from marvel yeah, I'm, I'm not a, a big enough X-Men fan to go X-Men heavy in my list, but Quicksilver uh, definitely would have been up there if I expanded this list a little further. Uh, but that being said, my number four is Professor X, Charles Xavier. Uh, this is just a, a case of, a lot of it is just uh, really enjoying James McAvoy's uh, playing of him in yes. uh, the X-Men series. Uh, I think that he is an iconic superhero in that he is the the leader he is professor x the x-men uh and i i do think that just that in itself while there's a lot of other mutants in that series uh, i think uh charles xavier professor x is able to stand out a lot just given his his uh his powers and his position and uh i was definitely a huge fan of him in x-men apocalypse which is the, the most recent x-men movie that, uh outside of logan uh, yes but yeah so that was a uh, for me professor x is my number four favorite marvel superhero i do enjoy james mcavoy as professor x and i love that his superpower is in his mind it's not uh <laughs> you know plenty of superheroes have the the brawn you know, the strength the build and it's nice to see one of the more, most powerful superheroes be um, all with, within his mind. Uh, it definitely uh, makes him unique. For my number four, 
uh, is more as a little less of a superhero, uh, but I think he would definitely count as a super as a good guy. Uh, is Deadpool, and I, I actually was not a big fan of Deadpool before the movie, but like many people, I was won over by Deadpool uh, in his rated r feature film uh just a hilarious character with a really interesting origin and power uh that allows him to be mangled and mutilated all over the place and get back up and keep on fighting uh deadpool is a hilarious combo of uh slapstick humor and also some uh compassionate moments as uh sometimes he, he you know he puts his heart on his sleeve uh so deadpool makes it in as my number four marvel superhero yeah i was just gonna say you know after after watching the movie everybody loves deadpool and i'm not surprised that you you included him in your top five deadpool 2 coming soon (laughs) yep uh so my number three is thor and thor is another character who really uh started to to pique my interest um from the avengers movies and i did not see the the original thor movie until after i saw avengers but after that i really was a big fan of thor uh really enjoying those movies uh really enjoying himself just as a character uh with you know thor's hammer uh to me that is like one of the the more more exciting superheroes just in the sense that the idea of someone being the only person who can use a weapon is something that we've seen uh a lot throughout history and i think it's uh, very interesting uh, having a superhero who has that power uh definitely made for some funny scenes in the avengers movies when other characters tried to lift his hammer unsuccessfully uh and of course just the the golden locks on thor uh there's there's a whole lot to love about the guy so that is why he's my number three Agreed. I think I've gained a lot more respect for Thor as the MCU has expanded. I did not enjoy what what little I saw of his first two feature films, but his inclusion in the Avengers definitely developed him in a positive way, and his most recent feature film, Thor Ragnarok, was one of Marvel's best, uh, and, and I really did enjoy that one, uh, getting to see a lot more of Thor and developing Thor and his world a lot more. Uh, now that Marvel has really hit their stride, it seems like they can't miss. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's also, well, he's just an integral part of the Avengers at this point, uh, definitely deserving to be in a top five for uh, Marvel superheroes. Uh, my number three is uh, another X-Men, and it's, uh, and it's Wolverine, the main guy from the X-Men. And uh, similar to Deadpool, Wolverine has his regenerative powers, uh, but he also has been alive for, like, forever. Wolverine, although his story does change from movie to movie as they, like, reboot mid-series multiple times for the X-Men, but he's, he's, uh, t- he's just been a part of so much conflict, so much warfare, uh, and he's seen so much. Uh, he's just the ultimate BA. Like, he's, he's got the iconic claws that come out of his arms and he's just a menace against any foe uh he's just the the definition of raw like anger and power and uh, i've i've been a fan of anything he's been in yeah you can't talk about the x-men without talking about wolverine uh for me this is just like an example of me not being 
the biggest X-Men fan uh, for me to to leave him out of my top five, but he is certainly deserving of uh, being mentioned in this this top five. And he was shown to have range uh, in Logan, where he played less of the monster, like, brute strength guy and had to uh, rely more on others, which was a new, mm-hmm. a new look for him. Yep, def- definitely a an intricate character who you know, we, we've seen a lot of in very different ways. Uh, my number two, a classic superhero, that is Spider-Man. Uh, and while I do enjoy the Avengers version of Spider-Man, uh, in terms of the movies, I'm a big fan of the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies. The original Spider-Man was actually the first PG-13 movie I ever saw. Wow. Uh, I was only in first or second grade when it came out. My my mom was okay with me going. Uh, very much enjoyed Spider-Man. Actually, uh, one of my, my best friends growing up uh, was a huge Spider-Man fan. Uh, his, always his favorite superhero, still is. Uh, my Some of my friends would, would joke that uh, because of all the, the Spider-Man decor he had in his room that he actually had a spider-man shrine where he would worship spider-man uh that that was always fun to fun to talk about um but i for me i i've always i've never liked spider-man to that extent but uh he's certainly been one of my favorite superhero uh characters um always since i was a little kid and that that really goes back to those toby Maguire spider-man days agreed my he's also my number two and I think that his, uh, I think our generation should feel a special connection to Spider-Man directly as a result of Tobey Maguire's masterful performance of Spider-Man in the original trilogy. Although I would say Tobey Maguire uh, it has is not the best Spider-Man that we've seen of all the Spider-Mans, he's definitely the best Peter. And uh, that's why I think we fall in love with him, because that's the guy we see when the mask isn't on. And, uh, and, and, because of that he has always been the peter for me luckily in avengers it's less of a reboot and more of a new version of spider-man and this one spider-man truly is a teenager i know that he plays a teenager Mm -hmm. in uh the toby Maguire versions but uh, tom holland is an actual teenager and uh i think that he's great in the new avengers and and i look forward to seeing more of him uh, although we'll have to see the the new Avengers to see the most recent Spider-Man, so I'll, I will I won't comment on that. But Spider-Man, I think, especially for our generation, a top tier superhero and uh, a, a a big reason why I'm into Marvel in general. And and I'll and I'll move forward to my number one now. We'll do your number one last um, because my number one is also in the spider-man uh kind of universe as he is a bit of an anti-hero that exists within the spider-man universe and that's venom and venom i don't think i'm not trying to say that venom is the best marvel character of all time but venom is my personal favorite i think venom is a very interesting character who's pretty complex he his origin is actually with spider-man as the symbiote uh joined with spider-man before eventually uh leaving peter parker and finding eddie brock and becoming the symbiote known as venom who has very similar powers to spider-man but he's a little bit scarier a little bit more uh uh bare teeth and uh and and he finds ways to torment spider-man uh which is were always my favorite spider-man adventures uh were the ones where he had interact with venom which would make him seem like a villain but in the end venom usually ends up contributing to the cause and uh 
having Spidey's back in the final battle. And for that, he's my number one Marvel character. Yeah, I, I've always appreciated Venom. Uh, I think the Spider-Man 3 from back in the Tobey Maguire days was an interesting movie, but I did appreciate the Venom character itself in that one. Uh, we do have a, a new Venom movie coming out that is uh, certainly something to look forward to. Uh, so definitely respect you kind of going a little off the edge with, like you said, uh, an anti-hero when you see your number one. Yes, um, and, and let me just say... Spider-Man 3 is a terrible movie, and <laughs> having Topher Grace play Eddie Brock is one of the worst casting uh, calls I've ever seen, and maybe in history, because Eddie Brock is supposed to be a bit of a bruiser and a larger guy than Peter Parker. Topher Grace, definitely wrong person to cast in that role, and I would, I'm eager to forget Spider-Man 3 as we <laughs> usher in a new era of Venom with Tom Hardy, the man behind the mask. Uh, taking the role i'm so excited about that movie and also venom's super, uh, future involvement with uh the new spider-man yep definitely one to look forward to uh with that my number one this is another character who won my heart over with the avengers series and that is iron man yes uh i i love robert downey jr as an actor which part of it maybe plays into my my opinions of Iron Man, but I certainly uh, started to fall in love with him as a superhero in uh, the first two Avengers films, and then by Captain America Civil War, I certainly found myself rooting for Iron Man and his side uh, over Captain America, and uh, at that point, I was, I was fully committed to say that our uh, billionaire playboy philanthropist in a high-tech suit that every time i see it as a software engineer i'm just amazed at how how it could be possible for someone to be smart enough to be able to to build and program that uh and because of that i have iron man as my number one i think he's a great choice for the number one an obvious choice for number one because robert downey jr truly is the identity of the avengers of the mcu to this point and I understand that Infinity War is supposed to be a, a turning point, and maybe in the future uh, the the Avengers will take a turn and focus on different characters, newer characters. But for the time being, the the, the MCU is built off of the uh, the legacy that Iron Man has started, and I think that he's a great choice for your number one and to round off our uh, our top five for Marvel superheroes. Moving forward. We're going to take on uh, our next sec our next segment, my show, my team. First, Corey will start things off by giving his take on the Pittsburgh Pirates' respectable start to the 2018 MLB season in the face of an off-season trade of a superstar that angered an already bitter fan base. The pitch, high fly ball to center field. It's hit pretty well toward the wall. Go Jolly Roger and call it maybe the best all time in Pittsburgh. What a game! They've won it on McCutcheon's home run! On January 15th, while most of the country celebrated the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Pittsburgh sports fans were mourning the loss of Pirates star outfielder Andrew McCutcheon. 
who was traded to the San Francisco Giants after nine seasons wearing black and gold. The 2013 NL MVP had been a fan favorite in Pittsburgh since making his Major League debut in 2009 and was the most notable member of the teams that ended the franchise's streak of 20 straight losing seasons and qualified for the postseason three years in a row from 2013 to 2015. But his age, regression in talent and skill set, and the contract he'll command upon reaching free agency at the end of the 2018 season made trading McCutcheon a difficult but wise decision for a team with one of the lowest payrolls in baseball. Still, trading a player like Andrew McCutcheon just a couple days after also trading ace starting pitcher Garrett Cole infuriated a fan base that knows the feeling of losing year after year all too well. Fans flooded social media with comments saying the Pirates would have less than 70 wins this year and that everyone should boycott attending home games at PNC Park until owner Bob Nutting sells the team someone who doesn't trade away all the team's best players every year before they have to pay them. The frustration was understandable, and the bleak prediction seemed reasonable, given the team's disappointing 2016 and 2017 campaigns. But then at the end of February, the Pirates did something unexpected. It was a move that didn't break headlines, but one that could reshape the outlook of an entire off-season as the team quietly traded for outfielder Corey Dickerson, a 2017 all-star outfielder with the Tampa Bay Rays, coming off a career-high 27 home run season. The Dickerson trade proved to knowledgeable fans that the Pirates are committed to fielding a roster that is capable of competing in 2018, and the early results on the field are indicative of that. With a 17-12 record entering the month of May, the Pirates set a new franchise mark for wins in the first month of a season. Gregory Prolanco is mashing homers and fellow outfielder Starling Marte is off to a solid start after his suspension play 2017 as he's near the top of the league in stolen bases and runs scored. Dickerson and catcher Francisco Cervelli have both been forces behind the plate with Dickerson in the top 20 in all of baseball for batting average and Cervelli in the top 25 in both RBIs and ops. The pitching staff, ridiculed entering the season for its lack of major league experience and success, leads all of baseball with five shutouts. Trevor Williams is top 20 in wins, ERA, and war, while closer Felipe Vazquez is perfect in save opportunities. The Pirates' early success might not be sustainable over a full season, and a third consecutive below 500 season, despite their great start, would not be a shocking outcome. But the players on this roster are proving there is plenty of reason to be excited about baseball in Pittsburgh this year, even if Andrew McCutcheon is playing in a different city. Alright, and now Ben will tell us about his experiences rooting for Crystal Palace, a team that has spent another season fighting off relegation from the Premier League.
Crystal Palace started the season by breaking the record for longest scoring drought to start a Premier League season. They were goalless in their first seven matches and obvious favorites for relegation early in the year. New manager Frank DeBoer was sacked after losing his fourth match and Roy Hodgson was tasked with turning the Crystal Palace dumpster fire around. Wilfred Zaha finally breathed life into the team when he scored in Palace's eighth match of the season against Chelsea, ending a 731-minute scoring drought. Palace went on to win this match 2-1, earning their first Premier League points of the season. From then on, Palace played their usual mid-to-bottom table football, having to scrape and claw for points among the other bottom feeders in the league. With such an egregious start, Palace spent the majority of the season in the relegation zone, with little to play for except for the prospect of another season in the Premier League next year. A promising 3-5-0 run in December and into in November and into December gave Palace a massive boost to end the calendar year, but things still seemed pretty bleak for the South London lads. By the end of March, Crystal Palace was just one spot out of the relegation zone with six games to play. Things looked bleak, but Coach Roy was confident that Palace could bring home points from many of these final games, none of which featured opposition from the top six teams in the league. With top striker Christian Benteke in terrible form all season, scoring just two goals through March, Roy Hodgkins decided to shake things up and play Wilfred Zaha out of position at striker. This move ended up paying off in a big way as Palace have gone on a 2-2-0 run during this most important final stretch of the season, with Zaha leading the way with four goals in just four matches. This run is highlighted by the most recent victory, a 5-0 thrashing over Leicester City that all but secured another year of Premier League football for Crystal Palace. Although the season started with historic lows, the Eagles of South London were able to reach historic heights of achievement, as 5-0 is their largest margin of victory in their history in the Premier League. Palace are ready to leave the shackles of mediocrity behind and reach for new heights when they return to football late this summer. All right, so that wraps up um, our podcast for tonight. Um, as a reminder, uh, we are available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Continue to give us listens there. Subscribe. Review us, please. That yes, helps a review lot. Review us as well. That, that would be fantastic. Uh, we're going to continue to uh, promote the podcast on social media. So keep an eye out for us there. And uh, Ben, do you have any, any closing thoughts? Uh, <laughs> go Palace. <laughs> go Thunder. Thanks for listening. Thanks.